Hello, and welcome to part 13 of my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley, and I'm a professor in the Department of Biology and Marine Biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where I've been teaching an undergraduate class titled Antarctic Ecology, Geology, History, and Policy. In this podcast, I've distilled this class down into numerous parts that cover all these topics about Antarctica. Part 13, presented here, is on the race to be the first person to reach the South Pole, and the end of the heroic age in Antarctic history. As described in the last podcast, Scott's discovery expedition was the first to obtain comprehensive knowledge on the geology and biology of the Antarctic continent. But it led to a conflict between Scott and Ernest Shackleton, who is now making plans to head south with his own expedition. These two men were now competing with each other, and both wanted to be the first to reach the South Pole. However, Scott believed that he had priority rights in this goal. When Shackleton was sent home by Scott during the Discovery Expedition, he began raising funds over the next two years and finally raised enough by 1907 to purchase a used and refitted whaling ship, the Nimrod, and he chose 15 men to join him from over 400 applicants. These men included Douglas Mawson, an Australian geologist, and Frank Wilde, in charge of provisions, who had also been on the Discovery Expedition. Shackleton wanted Bill Wilson, his friend and colleague from the Discovery Expedition, to join him as well but Wilson had strong loyalty to Scott and refused. Wilson also became the mediator between Scott and Shackleton and made Shackleton promise he would not set up his base camp in McMurdo Sound, where Hut Point was located. Only Scott could work from that region of the Ross Sea, and Shackleton had to agree. Shackleton left on 7 August 1907, voyaging to New Zealand first. His plan was to keep his word with Scott and set up his base camp on the Ross Ice Shelf east of Ross Island. But when they arrived and scouted the area, he saw that the front of the ice shelf occasionally calved away, and he didn't want to risk his camp to that possibility. So he sailed back to Ross Island, but there was too much ice to get to Hut Point, so he established his base at Cape Royds, 35 kilometers north of Hut Point on Ross Island. He built his prefabricated hut there, thereby breaking his promise to Scott to not use McMurdo Sound as his base and spent the winter working on various projects and preparing for his attempt to reach the South Pole the following summer. Shackleton also brought with him the first motor vehicles and ponies to be used in the Antarctic, thinking they would make the trek across the Ross Ice Shelf towards the Pole more feasible. But as it turned out, the vehicles failed and the ponies were only useful on the shelf, not the glaciers. In the spring of 1908, Shackleton chose three men to accompany him on the trip to the Pole, one of which was Frank Wilde. They left on 29 October and moved faster across the ice than when he traveled with Scott, using a route closer to the Transantarctic Mountains that had smoother snow for easier hauling of sledges. At the same time, he sent a party with Douglas Mawson to locate the South Magnetic Pole, which at that time was located on the polar plateau to the north of the dry valleys. This group succeeded in their goal and Mawson was to become one of the greatest explorers in Australian history. Meanwhile, Shackleton and his party crossed the Ross Ice Shelf and discovered the Beardmore Glacier, one of the largest glaciers in the world, that provided a route for them to reach the top of the Polar Plateau at over 10,000 feet in elevation. They continued south on the plateau and reached 88 degrees 23 minutes south before they ran out of food, less than 100 miles from the pole. Shackleton made a difficult decision to turn back, but knew that if he had continued, he and his men would not survive the trip back. This is when Shackleton began to emerge as one of the greatest leaders in British history, 
treating his men equally, being transparent about his plans, sharing in all the work, and ensuring everyone survived, even if it meant sacrificing his personal goal of reaching the pole. In addition, on the way back, they suffered from dysentery after eating bad pony meat left at a depot. Down to only one biscuit a day for food, Wild was in bad shape, and one morning Shackleton gave him his ration of biscuit. Wild never forgot this act of kindness and became a loyal follower and Shackleton's right-hand man from then on. When they finally returned to Cape Royds after 1,700 miles of sledging, the ship had arrived to take them home. Regarding his near miss on reaching the pole, Shackleton said, I'd rather be a live donkey than a dead lion. After Shackleton's attempt on the pole, Scott made plans for his own return to the south. He had funds to purchase another old whaling vessel, the Terra Nova, and left for the Antarctic in June 1910. Shortly after departing, though, he received a telegram from Roald Amundsen that he also was heading south. Shocked by this sudden decision by Amundsen, Scott was now in a race to be the first to reach the South Pole. Amundsen had originally planned to be the first to the North Pole, but then Frederick Cook announced that he had made it there. That was later shown to be fraudulent. And Robert Perry also claimed this, but again, this was questioned in later years. At this time in history, though, when an explorer said they had reached a certain goal, it was believed, even if irrefutable proof was not provided. So, Amundsen accepting this outcome, and now without the North Pole as a prize, he secretly planned for the South Pole, but did not announce it to the world or even to the men on his ship until after they sailed. Now, both Scott and Amundsen were heading to the Ross Sea at the same time, with each having the South Pole as their main objective. After reaching McMurdo Sound, Scott went south to Ross Island where he wanted to set up his winter quarters at Hut Point again. But just as Shackleton had found a few years before, there was too much sea ice to reach that far south. So instead, he had to settle for Cape Evans, an ice-free spit of land halfway between Cape Royds to the north and Hut Point to the south, and built another hut there. Meanwhile, Amundsen and his party reached the Bay of Wales at the front of the Ross Ice Shelf east of Ross Island, and where Shackleton was supposed to go on the Nimrod expedition, but didn't want to be in a place where the shelf was calving. Amundsen, though, went on top of the Ross Ice Shelf here and built their prefabricated hut at a spot that turned out to be about 90 miles closer to the pole than where Scott was located at Cape Evans. Before that summer ended, both parties began setting out depots of food and fuel on the route across the Ross Ice Shelf, with Amundsen succeeding in laying depots as far south as 83 degrees. He and his men were experts on skis and in using dogs to pull sleds, so made good progress. Scott, however, never became proficient at using dogs or skis. He tried ponies, but with the same limited success as Shackleton, and was not able to get as many depots laid out as Amundsen. Both parties spent the winter making plans and preparing for their trips to the pole the following spring. Neither party knew what the other was doing or planning. Amundsen, who was there only for getting to the pole, was anxious to start so that he could beat Scott, but left too early in September 1911 and had to turn back after a few days of intense cold and blizzards. He finally got in the way again by the middle of October, then moved quickly and efficiently across the ice shelf, found another glacier, the Axel Heiberg, for his access route to the plateau. They reached the plateau and then the South Pole on 14 December 1911, winning the race and leaving a flag and tent there with a note for Scott. Scott, in contrast to Amundsen, was there not just for the pole, but also to continue scientific investigations and to collect more meteorological data. Three of his men, Bill Wilson, Bertie Bowers, and Apsley Cherry Garrard, who was also the youngest member of the party at age 22, 
completed a winter sledging journey to Cape Crozier to collect eggs of the emperor penguin, which had a colony on the sea ice there. Their other objective was to test the sledges and the amount of food needed for a party to travel to the South Pole the next spring. Later called The Worst Journey in the World by Cherry Garrard in a classic book he wrote of that title about this expedition, the three men face intense conditions in the winter darkness and cold. They spent 36 days on the journey, man-hauling their sledges, and returned with three emperor penguin eggs that now reside in the British Natural History Museum. That spring, Scott left for the pole on 1 November with 15 men that included depot parties who set out new food caches farther to the south before turning back. Each depot, including those placed on the polar plateau, had rations for four men, the size of the party Scott had planned for the final push to the pole. However, at the last moment, Scott decided to take a fifth person with him, Bertie Bowers, so that the rations placed in these depots were now insufficient for five men. The final party, including Scott, Bowers, Wilson, Titus Oates, and Evans. Now, without dogs and man-hauling their sledge, the five finally reached the pole on 17 January 1912, about a month after Amundsen. And then they were disappointed in finding Amundsen's tent and message. They had lost the race. Their travel back from the pole was difficult and controversial. Scott lingered too long in one place to collect geological samples that Wilson had found, which turned out to be important fossils of Glossopteris, later helping to prove the theory of continental drift. Evans, suffering from a bad cut on his hand that was infected, fell into a crevasse on the Beardmore Glacier and received a con concussion. He became increasingly deranged, slowing the party down, and eventually died at the base of the Beardmore Glacier where they buried him. Oates also was in bad shape by then, with a badly frostbitten foot with gangrene setting in. Seeing that he was also slowing down the party, he left the tent one morning saying, I'm going out now and maybe some time. It was 17 March, which was his birthday, and he disappeared into a blizzard. Now down to just three men, Scott, Wilson, and Bowers continued to suffer from the cold and lack of sufficient food. In addition, the temperatures on the ice shelf were much colder that year than in a normal summer reaching lows in the minus 30s degrees Celsius. Trapped in their tent by a blizzard only 11 miles from one ton depot, which would have saved them, they all perished. Cherry Garrard was at one ton depot before that, but had orders not to travel farther south as it would mean sacrificing some of the dogs they had left. He later regretted not going farther south as he might have saved Scott. But in reality, Scott, Wilson, and Bowers were probably too far gone with cold and hunger to have survived anyway. Their bodies were not found until the next spring, along with letters and Scott's diary. And they were buried there as they were found in their tent on the Ross Ice Shelf, where they remain to this day, though now the tent has sunken into the shelf and is no longer visible. After this tragedy, Scott was immortalized in England as a national hero, though there have been critics who think he made bad decisions in not learning how to use dogs more efficiently, taking five instead of four men in the final party of the pole and for collecting rocks on the way back which further weighed down their sledge. Amundsen became a national hero in Norway, but died in a plane crash off the coast of Norway in 1928 while participating in a search and rescue operation for a missing Italian aviator. Shackleton, now without the pole as a prize, planned instead to be the first to cross Antarctica through the pole and raise funds for what he called the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition of 1914-1917. to Taking Frank Wilde again as second-in-command in the ship Endurance, they planned to enter the Weddell Sea opposite of the Ross Sea and begin the trek across Antarctica there, with another group, the Ross Sea Party, 
laying depots toward the pole on the other side. However, Shackleton left in a year when there was more sea ice than usual in the Weddell Sea, and his ship was frozen in before he could reach land on 15 January 1915. He and his men then endured an epic struggle for survival as their ship drifted northward with the pack ice throughout the winter, finally getting crushed and sinking on 21 November that year. Left with just their lifeboats, they reached open water and made their way to Elephant Island at the north end of the Antarctic Peninsula. Still without the possibility of rescue there, Shackleton took one remodeled lifeboat with five men to South Georgia Island, where a whaling station was located. They managed to get there in April 1916 after a harrowing journey at sea, surviving a rogue wave that nearly sank their boat. However, they could only land on the opposite side of the island from the whaling station, and Shackleton, with two others, had to climb over glaciers and mountains to reach the station, and did so in a non-stop trek of over 24 hours. The manager of the station, who knew Shackleton and thought they had all perished as no word of them had been received since they left in 1914, was brought to tears by their return. Shackleton quickly found a boat to pick up the men left on the other side of the island, then arranged for a vessel to rescue the rest of the men on Elephant Island. This was eventually accomplished, and all men were now saved with not a single loss of life, though on the Ross Sea Party, they did lose three men during that period. I highly recommend a book by Alfred Lansing on this amazing survival story called Endurance. Once you start reading it, you won't be able to put it down. Shackleton tried one more time to go south, now planning a circumantarctic expedition, and left in September 1921, again with Frank Wilde as second in command. However, when they reached South Georgia Island, Shackleton had a heart attack and died. His men buried him in Gritviken, and his grave can still be seen there. Years later, when Frank Wilde's ashes were found in a cemetery in South Africa, they were moved to South Georgia and buried on the right side of Shackleton. Shackleton is still considered the greatest leader in British history, even though he failed at reaching all of his goals. His men always came first, and his death marks the end of the heroic age in Antarctic history. Thank you for listening to my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and I hope you tune in to Part 14, the International Geophysical Year.